from Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is. This is. This is. This is War News Radio. Hi, I'm Anya. And I'm Max. This is War News Radio. If you went to elementary, middle, or high school in the mainland United States, like I did, U.S. history was a required subject. In fact, between kindergarten and the 12th grade, I studied U.S. history four different times. I learned over and over again about events like the Boston Tea Party, the Missouri Compromise, and the Oregon Trail. But I had never even heard of the U.S. territories until my 11th grade history class. We talked about them once, and then moved on to more exciting things, like prohibition. My education, or lack thereof, about the U.S. territories was pretty standard, so it's not surprising that so many mainland Americans know almost nothing about the major territories, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Around 4 million people live on these islands, but most Americans can't name all five territories, never mind point to them on a map. For this episode of War News Radio, we're taking a closer look at two of the Pacific territories, Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, whose historical relationship to the United States are defined by conflict and colonialism. This has drastically disrupted the lives of the native Chamorro people, who have inhabited Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and the rest of the Mariana Islands archipelago for the past four to 5,000 years. There are cultural and historical differences between Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, which led to Guam rejecting reunification with the Northern Mariana Islands in 1960, but both territories still face many of the same challenges today. The U.S. acquired Guam from the Spanish in 1899, after winning the Spanish-American War. The Northern Mariana Islands has a more complicated colonial history, and was passed more or less from the Spanish Empire to Germany than Japan, then to the United Nations, and was officially established as a commonwealth and political union with the United States in 1986. Although the pasts of the two territories differ, the relationship between the United States and both territories has been historically characterized by intense militarization, a trend that continues to this day. But increasing calls for decolonization and self-determination could be changing this dynamic. In order to understand this shift happening in the Pacific territories, we talked to residents of Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands about colonial history, militarism, political representation, and more. We'll begin with Dr. Bavakwa. My name is Michael Lujan Bavakwa. In the Chamorro sort of family network, I come from the clans of Cabeza and Bitsut. I got a PhD in ethnic studies from UCSD, and I taught at the University of Guam for 10 years, and I helped start a Chamorro studies program while I was there. Dr. Bavakwa outlined for us the colonial history of Guam. So Guam is the first place in the Pacific to be colonized. So it's the first place in the Pacific to be stumbled upon by Europeans when Magellan sort of stumbles upon it as he's trying to circumnavigate the world. And so because of that, the experience of the Chamorro people, the indigenous people, is different than most other Pacific Islanders. They get colonized much earlier. And they get colonized in a more direct way where um, the majority of the Chamorro people die, whether in, in war or through disease, because of Spanish colonization. The Spanish began the colonization of Guam in 1668. This is Robert Klitsky. He's a Wisconsin-born military veteran who moved to Guam and served as a senator in its legislature, and now hosts a conservative radio talk show. 
Just a warning, we had some trouble with his phone connection during the interview, so he can be a little hard to understand at times. Guam was very important to Spain for military reasons because it was, in a sense, the, the filling station for the Spanish galleons that sailed from Acapulco to Manila several times a year. So Guam has been militarized for over 300 years. When uh, the Spanish-American War broke out, of course, the, the United States was able to take Guam as a prize of war. Instead of viewing Guam's history as a long legacy of colonization and militarization faced by the native Chamorro people, Klitsky equated civilization on Guam with the presence of Western society after the 1950 Organic Act, when the U.S. officially incorporated Guam as a territory. At that time, there was really no civilian community, a very small mercantile community. But with the passage of the Organic Act, the civilian community began to grow. After that, the civilian community took off in a great fashion to the point that we're bringing in over a million and a half tourists every year. I think the real history of Guam is not the militarization of Guam, but the civilianization of Guam. Because there really wasn't a civilian community on Guam But this view of the civilianization of Guam coming from Western society can translate into harmful ideas about the people that live there. People asked us if we lived in like huts. I've been asked if we have internet, if we have cars. This is Veronica Chua. So my name is Veronica Chua. I am from Guam. I was born here um, and raised here my whole life. And my two parents moved here. They immigrated here from the Philippines. Veronica related to us some of the assumptions about Guam that she encountered in mainland America. One time when I was a little kid, someone asked me if we ate people. But that might have been a joke or something really sick. But the fact that people don't understand that like Guam is its own civilized place with our own culture, our own pride, is something that meant a lot to me. Dr. Bivakwa is both the scholar of Guam's tomorrow people and the Tomorrow person himself, and emphasizes that the history of Guam extends far before its colonization. The Chamorro existed long before the United States and deserves rights outside of the United States. That being said, he is keenly aware that colonial and military conflict have continued to fundamentally shape life on Guam ever since Spanish colonization in 1668. In 1898, Spain loses Guam and the rest of its territories to the United States. And since then, the United States has been for more than a century sort of the colonizer of Guam. And the face of that colonization has changed. So for the first 40 years of U.S. control of Guam, the U.S. was a colonizer and it was very upfront about being a colonizer. The island and the Chamorro people were governed by a Navy governor who was the head of the Navy base and given control over the lives of the civilians, the Chamorro people that lived outside of the base. And so those governors could throw people in jail without a trial. They could condemn land. They could suppress the language and culture, which different governors tried to do. And Chamorro people who were not citizens had no recourse. You just had to kind of endure under that. 
Mr. Klitsky described the relationship between the United States and Guam before World War II like this. Guam was just something that the U.S. had. really didn't have much use for it. The brief Japanese colonization of Guam during World War II and the subsequent recapturing of the territory by the U.S. had a huge impact on Chamorro society. Dr. Bivakwa again. After World War II, the face of American colonialism changes and it becomes much more benevolent. Japanese colonialism in World War II is much more aggressive or violent or much more brutal. And so Chamorros pine for the return of American power where they were treated in racist, diminutive, definitely disrespectful ways, but they weren't fearful of their lives being massacred like they were under the Japanese. And so after the war, the U.S. allows Guam to have a local government and U.S. citizenship. And so since 1950, the more people on Guam are U.S. citizens, and everybody born on Guam is automatically a U.S. citizen. The effects of World War II are still vividly remembered on Guam today. Describing how many in Guam reflect on the war, Veronica said, In World War II, we were, were, a lot of horrible, horrible things happened from Japanese imperialism. And the U.S. were basically the ones who stepped in and kind of saved us, I guess. And so a lot of people, especially those with older generations still in their family, have this value of like, oh, America did so much for us. They are like angels sent from heaven that saved our country or our islands. But according to Dr. Bivakwa, the United States may not have been quite as angelic as this popular narrative implies. Chamorros were feeling very grateful to the United States for uh, kicking out the Japanese. And the United States took advantage of that gratitude. And the U.S. presence before World War II had been very small on the island. But after the war, the U.S. seized the lands of thousands of Chamorro families, pushed them off their properties, bulldozing their farms, basically taking some of it, they said, was to build military bases. And military officers were going around the island, basically pointing at properties and then the next day the family would be evicted and the land would be taken. Since World War II, the United States has never been interested in total inclusion or legislative representation for Guam. There is no voting representation in the U.S. Congress. Guam, like as you know, like other territories, elects a single non-voting delegate and no electoral college votes and so therefore no vote for president. And so Guam is foreign in a domestic sense. The United States' interest in Guam have always lied elsewhere, outside of inclusion. Oh yeah, I mean, so Guam's, Guam's relationship to the United States is largely defined by its strategic value to the United States. So when the U.S. came through in 1898, Spain held all of the different islands in Micronesia, but it only wanted Guam, because Guam had the biggest harbor. Uh, the deepest harbor in Micronesia. So part of the experience of colonization for people on Guam, and in particular Chamorros, is that you seem to have this value to the United States, and that's your military strategic value. The relationship between the U.S. and Guam has evolved since World War II, but it is still strongly rooted in American military and geopolitical utility. Guam was the tip of America's sphere, pointed towards Asia, and over the past 15 years, the military has been pushing to increase its presence on the island, to build new firing range complexes. In some ways, the U.S. military represents the only available solution to the problems it has created. The military presence risks putting Guam in danger, 
but is also the only thing that Guam can look towards for protection when it's threatened by foreign powers. People say, for example, China is threatening Guam. We need America to stay safe. And the same token, though, you say, well, China isn't threatening any other islands around us. They're only threatening Guam because Guam has the basis. And Guam is America's, you know, it's the tip of America's sphere. U.S. military presence has been and continues to be a very significant part of the lives of those living on Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, a group of islands just north of Guam, which is also a current U.S. territory. Our first thoughts on this are from Catherine Atzlig, a student at Swarthmore College born in the Northern Mariana Islands who is half Chamorro. She moved to the mainland U.S. in 2014. I think on Guam, Guamanians would say that the military presence is a lot more there because they do have such a large military base on the island. It takes up a large portion of the landmass of the island of Guam. The Northern Mariana Islands has a slightly different military setup. They have something called the CNMI Joint Military Training, where they just use Tinian and Pagan, which are two islands in the Northern Mariana Islands for live fire training. So they just send U.S. military there for highly destructive military training. And people live on these islands. But in this recent uh, approval of military training there, the U.S. Navy has taken the entire island of Pagan. They're doing their highest level of live fire training on the island and not allowing any visitors. So a lot of people want to go back to where they're from on this island, and they're not even allowed to because of the U.S. military. Despite these controversies, however, many locals end up enlisting. It is a big thing for a lot of people to go and join the military, and I think that's largely due to the fact that there's not many opportunities to get off-island when you're on, like, Saipan and Tinian and so on, because they are so small, so joining the military is a good option for some people. Dr. Bavakwa shares another reason why many on Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands join the military. One thing that a lot of people feel in the military, right, is that if you serve, it's a way of finally fulfilling the American dream. But if you signed up for the military, it was a way that maybe you could overcome all of those feelings of diminishment, that maybe you could prove that you really are an American because you sacrificed and you served. But as many veterans have found, not necessarily. America will take your service, and they will more likely than not sort of chew you up and spit you back out. We can feel that it's great if a hundred kids just out of high school signed up and joined the military and left the island. But more, we can also lament that and say, wow, there's a brain drain. If we've got all these people leaving the island, you know, they should be here. They could be here. We should be creating opportunities for them here. In addition to many Native people enlisting in the military, there are also large numbers of soldiers from the United States mainland deployed on Guam who make up a sizable and sometimes imposing presence on the island. Veronica again. I think there's this sense that people who get deployed on Guam don't understand the culture. They don't really try to understand it. And they think that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. So I don't know how much of that is actually because the military feels like they can do anything they want. 
and how much of it is locals projecting that because they're American, we should let them do whatever they want, you know? But definitely we are cognizant and aware of the fact that military people can kind of get away with things. And it kind of feels like they have their own set of rules too. Among Guamanians, there is a generational divide on how the U.S. military's involvement in Guam is viewed. Dr. Bravakwa shared his own perception. It is complex because there is a legacy of being uncritical about the military presence, absolutely. Especially when you think about like what my grandparents went through in World War II, sort of the Japanese oppression and then feeling like the United States had saved them, that the United States had come in, kicked out the Japanese and saved them. After World War II, there was this feeling that you could not say anything bad about the U.S. military because they had saved the people. The Chamorros that come out of the war feel strongly like if you are patriotic to the United States, it means you need to silence yourself in the name of the United States. Very much a feeling like of, you know, like a, like a minority sort of feeling like I have to suppress who I am in order to be a part of this new nation. But what more and more people have come to realize is, of course, that you don't have to. And as we've gotten further and further away from the war, there's more ability to look at that without those strong emotions. And so more and more people are open to understanding that the military does help us. There's things it provides, but we also understand, and for the younger generation, they're able to understand it a little bit more. That the military also deprives, the military also takes away, and that the military, for what it nurtures and empowers, it also contaminates and it also suffocates. Military presence in the territories has also led to environmental degradation and the destruction of historical sites. There's a place called Retidian on Guam, which is a preserved spot for like nature, and there's a lot of ancient villages, or like there's an ancient village that used to be there. So they're like artifacts, they're like archaeologists that are trying to like save those artifacts. But the military is trying to use up that space or encroach on that space to build a firing range or like some kind of practice range. And so people are kind of pushing for explanation and transparency and that's not being given to us. And I think the one group that is being really vocal about it is this group that means in English, Protect Retidian. And they, I think they like drafted a message to the UN being like, help us, <laughs> they're not listening. And I don't think anything has come of that, which kind of speaks to everything on Guam is like, okay, we'll just go with it, I guess. It's kind of this like learned helplessness almost. According to Klitsky, the military has many safeguards in place to protect historical sites. The military's idea is we will gather the pottery shards and the other artifacts. We will mark the places where we got them. We will store them for future uh, research, etc. The military is building an archaeological resource site at the university to study these things. There is uh, a complicated bureaucracy which calls for the uh, military to do an environmental impact study before they turn it over one shovel full of dirt. After they do that, 
take public comments on it, they do something called a record of decision, which lays out what they're going to do and how they're going to potentially abate any potential environmental damage. Part of this bureaucracy is that we have a state historical preservation officer who has a veto power over many of the things that underlie the military construction. And the military has worked very closely with him. And my own analysis is that uh, they've done a really good job of protecting historical artifacts. Dr. Bivakwa disagrees. But do they really? Is there really strong oversight? Do we really know what they're doing? The last protest that was held against the US military in Guam, even in a pandemic, it had more than 200 people um, outside one of the bases where two years ago they had destroyed uh, an area where they had found artifacts and human remains because they didn't want to pause construction. The people working for them had just kind of gone around and picked up whatever they could find put it in, in paper bags, and then they had bulldozed the area. Because if you find historic remains and artifacts, you have to stop construction. And it also hurts because th that area is home to a lot of traditional medicinal plants that local healers use. And the military has said they'll save some of the plants and then they'll move them somewhere else. But a lot of these are very rare plants which simply can't grow in a pot can't buy them at a Home Depot or something like that. They grow in a very specific location under certain circumstances. Catherine told us about the similarly harmful environmental impact of U.S. military presence on the Northern Mariana Islands. I definitely think that environmental activism is tied with the anti-military sentiment on the island because the Northern Mariana Islands is home to a lot of endangered species. So a lot of the water and some of the smaller islands are protected wildlife zones so like the military training there's just they're like increasing traffic in the water they're doing sonar testing they're bombing they're ruining the coral reefs there and yeah so i i think that is the same <laughs> it's like all intersected with each other because the u.s military is essentially ruining the wildlife of each island they go to with all the testing they're doing. One of the reasons it is difficult for people living on Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands to successfully confront these issues with the U.S. military is the widespread sense that the international sphere, and America especially, is not listening to or acknowledging the problems occurring. Veronica and Catherine both felt growing up that many people didn't even know that their homes existed. I remember when I was a kid, I would memorize the coordinates of Guam and figure out how to pinpoint it on the globe so that one day when I went to the mainland, I could tell people on a globe where Guam was. Like I practiced it for months because it was that important to me that people knew that we existed. Catherine had a similar experience coming from the Northern Mariana Islands. Coming to the States, when I first moved here, my family and I, we're so tired of explaining where we were from that we would a lot of the time say we were from Guam or from Hawaii, just because it made it a lot easier to introduce myself. But it's sad because then like no one really knows where I'm from. And even still, it's just disappointing because 
you would think in the amount of time mainland U.S. spends on teaching U.S. history, they would at least once mention all the U.S. territories. More broadly, everyone native to Guam or the Northern Mariana Islands who we spoke to had strong feelings about their relationship with American identity and colonialism. On this, Veronica told us, I think I realized that we're actually not as American as we think we are. We are kind of like this hybrid of an island culture with some like Japanese in there, some Filipino in there, some Spanish in there. And it's kind of weird to think about who you are and the way that you think about the world and where those ideas come from because of, you know, the different cultures that have taken you over. Thinking back to before she had come to mainland America, she says, I didn't know what it meant to be an American. I know what it means to be Guamanian. Um, and part of that is supposedly being owned by America, but I didn't know what it meant to be American. Dr. Bavakwa shared what he sees as the general outlook of many Guamanians. Yeah, we're not being treated that great, but that's okay. Because if we get to be a footnote of the United States, it's worth it because America's the greatest thing in the world. Even if we get to be an asterisk of the United States, if we get to be a faint memory, if we get to be their bastard stepchild, it's all good because America's the greatest thing in the world. As a result of this outlook, American culture is very influential on Guam. But at the same time, it can also feel strangely inaccessible. Especially in our media, our television, we have a lot of ads for places we don't even have. So like Sonic, you know, we used to have a Dairy Queen at one point, Arby's, all those places that I think people take for granted in the States. These are things that as a kid, a lot of us really wanted, you know, not because we wanted to like eat there, but more because we wanted to feel like we understood what was being advertised to us. And I think that doesn't just go for like things as trivial as restaurants. Just in general, the things that America has advertised to us is basically a colony. Dr. Bavakwa explains. When you're on Guam, you're told in so many ways that you're American, you're a part of the United States, but then you don't actually feel it. Because if you try to buy something on Amazon or on eBay, you're more often than not told that they won't ship to you because you're a foreign country. If you try to sign up for Disney Plus, Disney Plus says that you cannot sign up for this because Disney Plus is not available in your country. And for many years, Netflix said the same thing, although now you can get Netflix on Guam. And so in order to get access to the greatness of American capitalism, you would have to get like a VPN to mask your identity, to pretend that you're a part of the United States so you can enjoy all of the wonderful things that America produces. This emphasis on American products, food, and culture also carries into the Guamanian education system, where the curriculum has been imported from the continental U.S. But Bavakwa believes that this copy-and-paste curriculum is disadvantageous for the students of Guam. Education, in a very basic sense, moves from the familiar to the unfamiliar. That as you are teaching children the concepts of the world, the concepts that they need to know, you start with things that are familiar to them, and then you use things that are unfamiliar. But in Guam, because our curriculum is basically cut and paste from the United States in so many ways, you begin with the unfamiliar thing. And then only later, as electives, do you teach them about the familiar thing. So in science class, there's 
heavy discussions about the types of trees that you find in Colorado and California. There's lots of discussions on snow and fall and spring, even though we don't have four seasons in Guam. We just have the dry season and the wet season. And so knowledge of those things don't help you. And in fact, all of those sorts of things do is reinforce colonization by making you feel that the things around you must not be worth knowing about because we didn't focus on them. Whereas the things that we learned about that are 10,000 miles away, that must be what matters because so much of my education was all about making me look over there. As we learn more and more, and as we think a little bit more clearly about things, you know, we, we begin to realize that in a way we are trying to force ourselves into a lot of models that don't necessarily work in the United States that well either. Chamorros come from a very different cultural perspective history, even though we have a lot of Americanization. But even other islanders around us who live on Guam come from a very different perspective. And even those from Asia who have settled in Guam, different perspective as well. So how long are we going to blame ourselves and not look at maybe the problem is we're trying to force ourselves into systems that either don't work well or aren't supposed to work for people like us? As she grew older, Veronica became aware of the harmful impact of colonialism and Americanization, as well as how she can play a role in working towards a better future. She says this is increasingly true of her generation. I also realized that as the kids who grew up with me also grew up, there were more voices being active in like how we should talk about Pacific Islander representation, about voting, about the future of Guam. And I think that's really powerful. The fact that people are realizing that we can do something about what's happening to us. But it's interesting because my parents didn't vote and no one really talked about voting at all. It felt almost like we couldn't do anything that actually mattered in the bigger sphere. So now that we're realizing that, okay, maybe we can like vote for Guam representatives and we can change things within our island and then maybe that will like help spur more conversation about other things. Both Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands have seats in the U.S. Congress, but these seats have no voting power. It seems unlikely that Congress will give them more active representation, both because of the military benefits of possessing these territories and the fact that changes in representation would mean a shift in the overall political leanings of Congress. Veronica is not especially hopeful. The fact that we have a non-voting party, it's kind of like a pity party almost. Like, what can you do? You know, you're there and you speak, but all you can do is try to convince other people who have that power over you to make moves that might potentially benefit your people. One reason it is so difficult to change the colonial relationship between the United States and territories like Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands is that it flies under the radar of most mainland Americans. In reference to the existence of modern-day colonialism, Veronica said, I would bet that a lot of people think that it doesn't exist anymore. Dr. Bavakwa adds, Colonialism can take many forms. It can be conservative, and it can be liberal, it can be progressive. While most on the mainland lack awareness of the ongoing colonialism affecting Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, there are still many people working to create solutions. Although a great number want the relationship between the U.S. and its Pacific territories to change, there is no consensus about how this issue should be resolved. Some, like Mr. Klitsky, support the status quo, 
because they believe that Guam benefits significantly from its territorial status. I think, you know, if you look around at the other islands in this part of the world, of the rest of Micronesia, Guam is a paradise. Everybody from the Republic of the Marshall Islands, Republic of Palau, and the Federation of Micronesia, the citizens of those countries can come to the United States without documentation. I think, to me, Guam is the greatest place to live in the whole world because, you know, we have a, a tropical paradise under the American flag uh, with American laws, American democracy, etc. There are others who believe that the territory should push for statehood, which would require congressional approval. But Catherine and others think this is unlikely to happen, partially due to the island's long-standing subjugation. Statehood for Puerto Rico is more commonly discussed, but it has never really been presented as an option for the Pacific territories. If someone told you, oh, the Northern Mariana Islands wants to become a state, most people in the United States have never even heard of the Northern Mariana Islands. Veronica highlights some of the complexities that come with the idea of breaking off from the U.S. if that were to happen. So overall, I think the big problem is that we do get a lot of benefits from being part of this bigger power. Like, you know, I have a U.S. passport. I don't need a visa to go to a bunch of different countries unlike, you know, other passports. A third possibility is the idea of independence and decolonization. The United Nations initially outlined after World War II that decolonization could mean integration, full integration into the colonizer's country or independence and autonomy from it. Now, most everybody has chosen independence as their preferred option, but there can be complicated feelings. Decolonization is not mine alone to determine, and it is a process that is supposed to lead towards genuine self-government, and that can mean your own governing, your own sovereignty, or it could mean full and fair treatment within, that you are a self-governing entity within, but at least you're treated fairly and equally within that. But because of the impacts of centuries of colonization, it would be difficult for Guam or the Northern Mariana Islands to quickly become self-sustaining states and disentangle themselves economically from the United States. Catherine's priority is to remove the presence of the U.S. military from the territories. For me, I think the bare minimum is the U.S. military should leave. They do not have any right to just claim land for all this like crazy training that they're doing over there. I, I can't think of a solution because obviously the Northern Mariana Islands depends on the United States a lot for economic support. Veronica agreed with the difficulty of finding a solution for territories that are currently dependent on the United States. I don't think Guam has ever really had the experience in like the international political sphere to try and fend for itself and sustain itself because we've always been colonized, you know, since, since I can even think back to. And we don't have a lot of resources to export, you know. Dr. Bavakwa, who works with the organization Independent Guahan, advocates for Guam's independence and free alliance with the United States as a solution to the complex history of colonialism and militarization. The majority of the people in the United States don't know that Guam is a part of the United States. And I don't think that we should have to spend all of our energy trying to get them to know us and understand us 
in order for us to be treated with respect. I feel that by being tied to the United States, Guam will always be held back. And so I would prefer Guam have the independence where it can still work with the United States. It can still be allied with the United States, but that it doesn't limit Guam's options. In 1997, Guam's local government created the Commission on Decolonization to decide its future. The commission created task forces that investigate different solutions, including statehood, free association, and independence, and intended to hold a non-binding plebiscite to allow Chamorros, the native inhabitants of Guam, to voice their self-determination. However, a white resident of Guam who was excluded from the plebiscite sued the Guamanian government and won his case, which has delayed the plebiscite until either the laws are rewritten or the vote is restructured. Even though the plebiscite, when it eventually occurs, will be non-binding, Bavakwa believes it is an important step in the right direction. For me, what needs to happen is that the United States and the people need to listen to the territory. They need to ask them what they want, and they need to give them the ability to express it freely and fairly. Regardless of what solution is best for the people of Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, instigating change through the United States government will be incredibly difficult due to the lack of representation for those that live in U.S. territories. It would be hard to get the U.S. government to sit down and deal with Guam faithfully because Guam is a territory. What right does the territory have to tell the great United States what it's supposed to do? It is hopeless in the sense that the U.S. is making decisions for an island chain so far away and giving them no voice in the matter. And so the most important thing is to stop imposing on the territories, to stop imposing your will, imposing your laws on them, but to stop and to take stock and to listen to what they want. That's our show. War News Radio is a production of Swarthmore College. This episode was reported, written, and produced by Sophia Becker, Lucas Meyer-Lee, Max Winnig, and Anya Slepian. For more from War News Radio, find us on Facebook or Twitter, or visit our website at warnewsradio.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>